0: You're listening to audio from Seven Mile Road Church in Waltham, Massachusetts, just outside of Boston. If you'd like to check out more of our resources or learn more about our church, please visit sevenmallwaltham.com. I want to begin with the story of two Williams. Uh, The first is William Wilberforce, raise your hand if you've ever heard of William Wilberforce, many of us have. The second is William Pitt, probably less, but how many have heard of William Pitt? Of course, Sam Giroux, the historian, not surprised there. Uh, Both were well-known men with great reputations in 18th and 19th century England. Uh, William Wilberforce is, is most famous for his role in the abolishment of the slave trade in England. And William Pitt followed in the footsteps of his father and became prime minister. And they were alike in in many ways. They were both politicians. Uh, they, They shared a lot of common intellectual interests. They were both working for justice in their nation as they sought to abolish the slave trade. They even grew up and went to school together. And they both were named William which I think a lot of people in England were named William at the time. But it makes sense that they were extremely close friends. Very, very similar in a lot of ways. There's one major difference between William Wilberforce and William Pitt. Wilberforce was a Christian. Everything he did, everything he thought his entire life was driven by his faith in Christ. Yet his friend, William Pitt, on the other hand, though he had sort of formal religious commitments as a politician in England, he was not a Christian. And he had absolutely no concern for the things of God. He made this very clear. And so the two Williams, though close in so many ways, a lot of like in many external ways were radically different in the most important way. And one well-known story Displays this well. Wilberforce was, was desperate to see his his friend William Pitt come to Christ. He he was concerned for his soul. He he wanted to see him become a Christian. So, he would beg him to come and hear this this preacher named Richard Cecil of London. And Wilberforce loved Cecil's ministry because in, in Wilberforce's mind, Cecil preached Christ, but it was just crystal clear and passionate. No sort of frills. Just clarity on the gospel. So he wanted Pitt to come with him in here. And he he persuaded him finally after being pestered, William Pitt agreed to go with him. And they go here, this preacher in London, Richard Cecil, and according to Wilberforce, it was an incredible sermon. I mean, he is, Wilberforce is overwhelmed by the gospel and the sense of of the greatness of Jesus. He described it as, hearing this sermon, as being lifted up to the heavens. But he's also wondering, as he's sitting there, as you and I would, what does his friend think of this sermon? Surely it's doing something to him, right? And he didn't have to wonder for very long, because after the service, as they're, they're leaving, before, before they even get out of the building, Pitt turns to him and says, you know Wilberforce? I have not the slightest idea what that man has been talking about. Not a clue. You can imagine how frustrating that would be for Wilberforce. Maybe you've had a a similar experience if you're a Christian. Maybe you've had people in your life, you long to see them understand the gospel. Maybe you've explained it to them, brought them to church, yet they they have no idea what's going on. Or maybe you can remember, Christian, back to before you knew Jesus. And you can relate to William Pitt and say, I had no clue what was going on. Well, in our passage this morning, Romans 5, 5 through 8, the Apostle Paul explains to us exactly what was going on in that situation and what has happened in many lives all throughout history. You see, he's he's explaining to us What happens in the form of a contrast list? You heard it as we read the scripture earlier. You see, there are only two ways to live. You either live life according to the flesh or life according to the spirit. Every single person, Wilberforce and William Pitt, You and I, we are either in one category or the other. We are either a Christian or a non-Christian. There's no middle ground. We are either of the Spirit or we are of the flesh. In Wilberforce in this story, the Christian lived according to the Spirit. He was born again. So when he heard the truths of God, he couldn't help but delight in them. But Pitt, who though he was intelligent, though he was even outwardly religious, though he understood some truths about Christianity because he was living according to the flesh, those glorious truths were like a foreign language to him. He could not understand. And so Paul shows us this morning, that this is true of everyone. And he gives us this this compare and contrast list, if you will. There are a a few comparisons. So in the one column, he puts life according to the flesh. In the other column, life according to the Spirit. And both set their minds on something. Both are living according to something, but that's where the similarities end. Both could not be more different from one another. And so as we study this text this morning, as we look at this contrast list of life in the the Spirit and life in the flesh, God's desire for us is that we would see both the seriousness of sin and life apart from God, and that we would see as well the radical power of the Holy Spirit. And, and we'll see this, and this is the incredible reality, most importantly, that God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, can and often does and delights to transfer sinners like you and me from the one column to the other. It's the glory of the gospel. And so this is meant to be a text that forces us to examine our hearts and minds and see where we stand with the Lord. So instead of walking through this, as we we normally do, sort of going verse by verse, because of the nature of how Paul contrasts this, we're going to to do the same. We're going to look at a contrast list. First, this is our simple outline for this morning if you're taking notes. Number one, life according to the flesh. Number two, life according to the Spirit. And, And as we walk through this, we'll draw out some practical applications along the way. Number one, we first see life according to the flesh. Look at the first half of verse 5 again says this, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. So, here's the first question we ask. What does live according to the flesh mean? Well, when Paul uses this word flesh, he is not talking about physical body. He's not talking about muscles and skin and bones, nor is he talking about, though this is true elsewhere in the New Testament, he's not talking about the fleshly sins of of sexual immorality, though that's part of it. That's not the idea that he has in mind here. When he says flesh, live according to the flesh, he means he's referring to humanity's corrupt and fallen nature. That's what he's talking about. So to live according to the flesh means to live according to your corrupt and fallen nature. It means to live in pursuit of self-glory instead of the glory of God and the good of others. It's to say, ultimately, life is not about God and submission to His will. It's about me and my desires. It's this internal opposition to God and His ways. And guess what? It's the default of every human heart. Yours and mine included opposition towards God and pursuit of self. In the words of of verse 2, which we saw last week, Romans 8 verse 2, to live according to the flesh is to live in submission to the law of sin and death instead of in submission to God. And this is an important concept for you and I to grasp because I I think when when we start thinking about Uh, Living according to the flesh or sinners or sinful people, there's a temptation to just think about people who do really bad things, right? Like those people who are murderers, those people who are thieves, those people who are, are drunkards and ruining their lives and ruining the lives of those around them. But friends, Paul begins with the N word here. And you must know, you and I must know that you can live a morally upstanding life by the world's standards and still be living according to the flesh. You can still be opposed to God and pursuing yourself. So Paul then goes on to describe what life according to the flesh looks like. First, he says, those who live according to the flesh, they're pursuing their own selfish desires, not God. They set their minds on the things of the flesh. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean to set your mind on the things of the flesh? Well, mind here, we shouldn't look at this as only an intellectual pursuit. He's not talking just about thinking, though that's part of it. The idea here gets more at that of your whole person. Your thinking, yes, but also your your desires and your affections. We actually use this language, don't we? We we talk about setting your mind to something. It it means to, to have a focus and sustained attention on something. Imagine a student struggling with with a math exercise, which just describes my high school career, and and a tutor is helping him sort of with a concept and says, listen, if you just set your mind on this, you're distracted, you're not focused, but if you set your mind to this, if you focus all your faculties, all of your brain power, all of your everything, you will solve this problem, right? It's true for most people, not for me, right? Or we say things like, oh man, it's amazing what you can do if you set your mind to accomplish something. What do we mean? We mean putting all of our focus and pursuits and desires and affections into something. That's what Paul means when he says set your mind. He's not just talking about thinking. He's talking about the the whole inner person being drawn towards something. And this is the description Paul gives for those who are not Christians. Every single one of them. They're not just neutral before God in their thinking. The direction of their desires, the patterns of their thoughts, the practices on the whole are set against God and only pursuing self. And this isn't new to, to the book of Romans. It's not new to the Bible. Listen to what, what Paul said in Romans back in Romans chapter 1. Now listen to the, the mind language here. Verse 21 of Romans 1, he says, Although they knew God, meaning they were aware of Him because His glory was displayed in creation, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking. And their foolish hearts were darkened. And claiming to be wise, they became fools. In Romans 1.18, Paul says they suppress the truth of God. So to, to set your mind on the flesh is to suppress the truth of God in His Word, either by outright denial of Him, or, what's often more subtle, an acknowledgment of His existence without any intention of submitting to Him. I think of the Frank Sinatra song, I Did It My Way. You guys heard that song? He goes through walking through his whole life As if it's a virtue to say, I didn't listen to anyone, I only sought me and my desires. Or we may hear it another way. You have to discover your truth and pursue that thing. That's the way our culture talks about this. And Paul says, to do so is to live according to the flesh and to be thus in direct opposition to God. Now, Paul elsewhere, he actually likes doing this. I noticed this this week. He, he does these compare-contrast lists elsewhere as well. One of them is in Galatians chapter 5. And here, he gives us some more specific examples in a list of, of what this looks like in someone's life. What are examples of the things of the flesh? Galatians 5.19, he says this, Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things alike. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now That's a big, heavy list, but I want to point out two things. Notice first about the things on the list that he mentions some more public, identifiable, outward works of the flesh, right? We, we, outward sins. I had a professor call these marquee sign sins. You know what a marquee sign is? Right, you drive by and there's it's a big sign sticking out over the theater and it says, you know, Bruce Springsteen, Thursday night, he only plays stadiums now, but right, it's, it's big and bright so you can see it on display. So we see some of those on this list, right? Sexual immorality, drunkenness, sorcery, fits of of anger. right? But that's not all that's on the list. Not those big external marquee sign sins, but notice also as you dig deeper, first all of those things start inwardly, but he also talks about things that often happen in the heart. He mentions right next to all of these marquee sign sins, envy. Wow. Desiring what others have. He talks about idolatry. Placing in your heart things of this world above God. He talks about enmity, this internal bitterness that leads to strife. So not only do we have the blatant marquee sign sins of the works of the flesh, we also have the hidden works of the flesh as well. And just in case you look at that list in Galatians 5 and go, I don't really think there's anything there that, you know, describes me. He says, "Oh, by the way, and things like these." It's not an exhaustive list. And the point is to show us that all of us have set our minds on the things of the flesh. All of us have spurned God and his word and turn to our own way. And friends, this is the mindset in every sphere of society. The most hardened criminal apart from Christ and the most moral person you can think of apart from Christ have equally set their minds on the things of the flesh and thus are in opposition to God. Now that's a bleak picture, but it's a really important biblical truth to understand. And here's why. Because of what he says next. What's the result of living according to the flesh and setting your mind on the things of the flesh? Verse 6. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. It's death. Now this is true in the physical sense in many ways. If you think foolishly, live foolishly, you're going to be likely to die more quickly. Think about that list in Galatians 5. right? If you pursue a life of sexual immorality, drunkenness, Yes, it will will likely destroy your body, certainly damage your body. You live a life of rage and strife, you're more likely to get killed. But Paul has a deeper meaning merely than just physical death here. He's talking about something much, much worse. A spiritual death. He's saying the non-Christian is not just neutral before God, but is spiritually dead to the things of God. That is why... We see in verse 8 that that person can do nothing no matter how good, no matter how moral, can do nothing to please God. Nor can they submit to God's law. In fact, verse 7 says they're hostile enemies of God. That's why they can't understand the truth of God. And that's a, a dire situation to be in. Scripture tells us without faith, no one can please God. That which does not proceed from faith is sin. And we see a summary of this in Ephesians chapter 2, where Paul says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Friends, this is Paul's picture. This is the biblical picture of the unbeliever, one who lives according to the flesh. Now, what do we do with this truth? Just think practically with me for a moment. First, the most important question to ask is this does this describe me that is the most important question to ask this morning am I living according to the flesh am I living in hostility to God now hear that question the question is not do I go to church do I prioritize the Christian religion do I come from a religious family Am I a good person in my neighborhood? Do I live a morally upstanding life? All of those, good in their own right, important in their own right, they point to the external. You can have all of those things. You can look the part and still be living according to the flesh. There's a, a video that went viral a few, few years ago, um, and it featured a Red Sox legend Manny Ramirez. I'll pause for applause. No, I'm just kidding. Um, there's four of us who know who that is in this room, but that's okay. And he was eating at, he, he is a Red Sox legend, okay? So if you don't know who he is, it's because you're not a Red Sox fan, right? He was eating at, at a restaurant and he noticed a guy with a Red Sox hat on. So, so he goes up to him and he says, hey, nice hat. And the guy looks at him like, who is this crazy man talking to me while I'm trying to order food? And he goes, Manny's like, okay, okay, all right. So he goes, hey, can I ask you a question? The guy's like, uh, sure. He goes, who's your favorite player on the Red Sox? And the guy looks at him like, like he's crazy and just completely blows him off. Completely blows off a Red Sox legend, even though he's wearing the Red Sox hat. Right? Now, every true Red Sox fan knows who Manny Ramirez is. That would be like saying, I'm a Red Sox fan, but oh, I didn't know they played at Fenway Park. No, you're, you're not a fan if that's the case. And, and that guy really proves a point. People do this all the time, right? They wear hats for fashionable reasons. But just because you wear the hat doesn't mean you're a true fan. Right? That's what that video shows. Friends, just because you have the external trappings of a religious life does not mean that you are in Christ. You can have all of those things and still be living according to the flesh, separated from God. And the reason I think this is so important for us to understand is because Jesus addressed this head-on in a very haunting way. I read this passage when I was a, a young Christian, as a teenager, and it has haunted me ever since. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 7:21. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. That is a haunting passage of scripture. For professing Christians, you hear what Jesus says. He doesn't say there are a few. He says there are many, many who outwardly appear to live lives for God, but inwardly they are living according to the flesh. And this sh- this should sober us. So we must ask ourselves in light of Second Corinthians thirteen five, which says, "Examine yourself to see whether you're in the faith." We must say, "Does this describe me? Am I living according to the flesh?" Am I a Christian or not? It's a good and right question to wrestle with. And for those of you who are not Christians, hear this truth. It's a hard truth, but hear it for what it is. It is a plea of love from God the Father, revealing to you your desperate situation apart from Him, so that you may receive the remedy of his grace in Jesus Christ. You must honestly come to grips with this question. Am I living according to the flesh? There's another practical application for those of us who are, are Christians. And that's this. We should ask ourselves, as a Christian, am I broken hearted as I consider the non-Christians around me? This is what the Holy Spirit, this is the conviction the Spirit brought on me this week as I was studying this text. Because I realized when we as Christians, when we grow too comfortable with life in this world, we lose sight of the dire spiritual situation our non-Christian friends, family, loved ones, neighbors are in. We think, well, you know, they're generally good people, they're upstanding citizens, they're you know, they're, they're living a, a good moral life. Or, maybe the other end, we become cynical and frustrated and as we look at people who wreck their lives and think, well, you know, you're getting, getting what you deserve. Both of those responses are apathetic to what Paul is saying here. According to God's Word, friends, they're headed toward death. Hostile enemies of God. That's the description of the person who is apart from Christ. If a dear friend or loved one was diagnosed with an aggressive cancer, what would you do? How how would you respond? I know how you wouldn't respond. You wouldn't sort of shrug your shoulders and say, well, you know, I hope they figure it out. You'd be heartbroken. You'd weep with them. You'd show a great concern for their well-being first, and then you would say, is there a cure? Is there a remedy for this? Because you love them and care for them. Friends, that is the Christian response to the non-Christian. It it should not be apathy or annoyance, but Christ-like, broken-hearted compassion. Jesus Himself, Luke 19, looked over the city of Jerusalem, and had rejected him, and what did he do? He wept, brokenhearted, as he considered their eternal state. Friends, when when was the last time you wept over those who are apart from Christ, over those who are living according to the flesh, over those who are dead to the things of God and headed toward eternity apart from Him? In our lives, in our city, in our neighborhoods, in our families, in our Friend groups. There's an old hymn just simply entitled Compassion. And it confronts us with this question. Did Christ over sinners weep? And shall our cheeks be dry? Let floods of penitential grief, tears of repentance, burst forth from every eye. When we see the true state of those who are living according to the flesh as Christians and our hearts break with compassion, then we'll be led to plead for their souls in prayer and to consider how can we bring them the cure? How can we bring them the gospel that they may be transferred from life in the flesh to life in the Spirit? And that leads us to the second column in this passage. Now that we've understood This life according to the flesh, we turn to some good news. I'm eager to get to some good news. Number two, life according to the Spirit. So if that first reality, life according to to the flesh, is this dark backdrop of the night sky, point two is like the North Star shining brightly. Back in verse five, second half. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. So let's ask some of the same questions. What does it mean? To live according to the Spirit. It means that you have been transformed by the gospel of grace. The Holy Spirit has opened your eyes to your sin and need of a Savior. You've trusted in Christ, been redeemed, and now your life is bent toward the glory of God. You're drawn like a magnet to pleasing God and living for God. Now, I think it's very important to say this clearly. Living according to the Spirit does not mean perfection before God, but pursuit of God. There's a difference. Some of you might be hearing this and you might be discouraged because you go, I, 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 know, I, I think I'm a Christian, but I struggle. Sometimes my mind wanders to the things of the flesh. And you're heartbroken over that. You're heartbroken over that because your mind is set on the things of God. You're pursuing Him. He's not talking about perfection here. There will be imperfections. There will be sins. There will be failings. But the life that is filled with God's Spirit will always be drawn to Him. And friends, here's the beautiful miracle of this. That you and I can move from one column to the other. That those who live according to the flesh As utter enemies of God, by the grace of God, the sacrifice of Christ, the power of the Holy Spirit can be brought into life according to the Spirit. So this draws us back to where we were last week. You remember last week, Romans 8:1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul is saying, listen, these these are the blessings for those of you who have your identity in Christ. The first is you have no condemnation. Christ has freed you from this. And now this week he's saying, oh, but there's more. Not only are you no longer condemned, but listen to this. You have your entire life filled with the Spirit of God so that you live according to the Spirit and set your minds on Him. And the result of this life according to the Spirit is that your, your internal focus then is towards Jesus. You delight in the things of God. You set your mind on those things. You ponder the truths of God and His Word. And over time, like clay on the the potter's wheel, your mind and heart are shaped by God's truth. And that inside out transformation begins to take place. So to set your mind on the things of the Spirit means you're less shaped by the ethics of this world, by the thinking of this world, and you're more shaped by biblical theology in the ethics of of love and sacrifice and protection of the weak. It means you're you're growing and learning how to apply the wisdom of God's Word to every situation of your life. Friendships, home life, work life, personal life, finances, all of those things. It means your own story and how you understand the world is shaped by the story of God and His revealed truth in the Word. It also means that you are growing increasingly in your passion for the gospel of Jesus Christ. One of the primary tasks of the Holy Spirit is to testify to Jesus. Therefore, if, if your mind is set on the things of the Spirit, if you're a Christian and you're living according to the flesh, that means you think often of the gospel. You say, yes, I am a great sinner, but Christ is a great Savior. And friends, this is the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer and it can't be gained by our own strength. This can't be gained by intellectual knowledge. You can study good theology and you should. You can come to church and you should. You can have Bible knowledge and you should. But you can have all those things and still have a mind of the flesh. We need the Holy Spirit to open our eyes and illumine the truth of God's Word that we may know and love Him intimately. This is the work of the Spirit in your life. Spirit opens your eyes that you would believe the gospel. Then as a Christian, you are filled with God's Spirit. And just as we prayed earlier, Psalm 119.18, Open my eyes that I may understand, that I may love you more, that I may know you more. This is why Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 2, he says, But as it's written, what no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared, for those who love Him. These things God has revealed to us through His Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. And friends, the result is, if we go back to Romans 8. The result in verse 6 is this. Instead of death, there is life for those who walk according to the Spirit. Eternal life, yes. But the emphasis here is on abundant life in the Holy Spirit today. I think many Christians throughout maybe the last couple hundred years have sort of emphasized eternal life, which is so, so important and true. We hold on to that, right? We have eternal life in Christ Jesus. But we don't have to wait to experience abundant life in the Spirit. That's offered to us today. You remember that list in Galatians 5 where Paul tells us the works of the flesh? Well, he goes on back in Galatians 5, and he contrasts those with the fruit of the Spirit. This is what a a life and mind set on the Spirit looks like. Galatians 5.22, The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Jesus uses an illustration of an overflowing stream of water to describe the Christian life in the Spirit. John 7.38 says this, Whoever believes in Me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And then John adds a comment in verse 39. He says, Now this He said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in Him were to receive. Jesus says, When you believe in Me, you are alive in the Spirit. You have fullness. You have abundance. You're thirsty for the things of God. That's what's yours, Christian. And then what's more, instead of hostility with God, we have peace with God. You hear it in our assurance of pardon. Through justification, we have peace with God. Paul emphasizes it again here. I think of stories of reconciliation. I love good reconciliation stories, books, movies. Uh, One of of my favorite in recent years was the the story of Daryl Davis. Daryl was an African-American blues musician who over many years convinced one by one 200 members of the Ku Klux Klan to leave that wretched organization. It's an incredible story. And he did this by befriending these men One by one. Even though they hated him. Even though they they told him that he was less of a human. That he had a gene in him that made him more prone to violence. They berated him. Yet they were drawn to his kindness. So he pursued them. One by one. Convinced 200 KKK members to leave. And change their minds. It's an incredible story. But if you're like me, you hear that and you go, how in the world did he do that? At first I thought it wasn't true. I'm like, this is not true. Why is he giving those people the time of day? They don't deserve that. That sounds way too out there to be true. Well, friends, there, there is no greater and more shocking reconciliation story than the gospel. That hostile enemies of God, like you and me, are pursued by the kindness of the Lord, are redeemed, are welcomed into the family, and through Christ are at peace with Him. Why would God do such a thing? We don't deserve it. It sounds way too shocking to be true, right? But guess what? It is true. And by His grace, we have peace with God in Christ by the Spirit. Friends, that's the the biblical picture of that other column. The one who lives according to the Spirit. Now, what do we do with this truth? Some applications to consider. First, for those of you in this room who are not Christians, this life is offered to you today. This is the offer of the gospel. If you would turn from your sin and self-rule to Christ and His rule over your life. He transfers you from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. From life according to the flesh to life in the spirit. Don't fool yourself into thinking that, you know, well, I'm just sort of in between. I'm just sort of on the fence. There is no in between. Jesus says you're either for me or against me. Can't be neutral with God. There are only two ways to live. So I would plead with you, don't continue on the path of death. Instead, trust in the crucified and risen Christ that you may be, as Romans 8-2 says, set free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death and that you would have the all-satisfying joy of life in the Spirit. It's the most important application for you if you're not a Christian. Now, to the Christian, here's the application for us. Be amazed at this truth. This is an incredible truth that sinners like you and I can be made friends of God and filled with His Spirit and empowered to walk according to the Spirit and set our minds on the things of God. William Wilberforce had another friend named John Newton. and John Newton was most famous for his conversion story and writing the most famous song in English history, Amazing Grace. What does the first verse of that song say? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. That song has been sung millions and millions of times. But Newton understood the weightiness of those words. Do you know why? Because he never forgot who he was before God saved him. He was a wicked, drunken, violent, hateful man who captained a slave ship. And God miraculously saved him. So when he's saying this, this amazing grace saved a wretch like me, he knew what it meant. Friends, I'd encourage you, all of us, myself included, recount what you once were apart from Christ. Recount your life in that other column so that you may be amazed that God has done the impossible and he has raised you from the dead. He's made an enemy his friend. He has set your mind on the things of God. And you now have life and peace in the Spirit. Be amazed at the gospel. And then lastly, Christian, pursue the things of the Spirit. Paul's describing who we are here, but it also, by implication, tells us how we should live in light of who we are. That's what Romans 8 will continue to explain. Here's what life in the Spirit looks like. So aim to grow in the the fruit of the Spirit. I'd encourage you, take Galatians 5.22 this week. Go back through that list and say, Lord, how do I need to grow? Will you help me by the power of your Spirit grow in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control? That's the Spirit's work in and for you. And then lastly, set your mind on the things of the Spirit. In an age of distraction, do the, the work of thinking about the things of God. Fill your mind with God's Word that you may be transformed that you may continually experience the life and peace that is yours in the Spirit. I'll leave you with Paul's words in Philippians 4.8, where he puts this in a command for us. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Let's pray together.